Welcome back to another episode of Single Payer Radio. Single Payer Radio is a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We're an affiliate of the Kentucky chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program, and we're proud to be a community partner with Forward Radio WFMP 106.5. And uh, just to let our listeners know, We'll probably be renewing our community partnership here in the next uh, week or two. We're recording today's show Wednesday, March the 10th, 2021. And uh, today, sometime, the stimulus bill goes back to the U.S. House of Representatives. And it's got some good things. $8 billion to federal, local health agencies for vaccinations, including targeting underserved communities. Seven billion to community health centers. 26 billion to native communities. And then for states that have not expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, this bill will pay those states more as incentives to expand. And the bill will also double state block grants up to a billion dollars for mental health services. I want to remind folks that the pledge drive here at Forward Radio is coming up. That will be March 27th through April the 9th. We'll have special gifts for donors. Check it out. Go to forwardradio.org. Four years ago, we flipped the switch to go on the air. So please support the shows here on Forward Radio, both locally produced and national. Go to forwardradio.org. And because you'll never know who you might hear on Forward Radio, this past Sunday, I tuned in to Ralph Nader's show, and lo and behold, Ralph is interviewing our own Kay Tillo about the scam involving Medicare Advantage, or as they like to call it, Medicare Disadvantage. Way to go, Kay. And then also, just let me plug a new show entering our lineup here at Forward Radio. It's called Community Control. I listened to the episode about police and the Klan last night. Very interesting. Crucial reporting. Great job, Vincent and Michael. Look forward to more. Another reason to support the unique programming here on Forward Radio. And the views and opinions here on Forward Radio are those of the speakers and not the station. Okay, let's get to our doctors, Dr. Michael Flynn, Dr. Eugene Shively. Morning, guys. Good morning. morning. Good to be here. Let me begin with the usual disclaimer as well that uh, any views expressed by me today represent my own personal views and do not represent the views of the Department of Surgery or the University of Louisville. This is Dr. Shively. My views are that of my own and do not represent Taylor Regional Hospital nor the University of Louisville Department of Surgery or the University of Louisville. Mark, I'd like to ask a question about that new bill. Do you remember how much was going to rural health care? I did not 
uh, see that uh, when I just did a brief glance at the uh, the summary. Okay. All right. So, <clears throat> topic today is uh, is part two of uh, our. Uh, we did a program about two weeks ago on the administrative costs of healthcare in this country, and I, I think I'd kind of describe it as the administrative overload of healthcare in this country. So, and we'll get into it a little bit in a little bit about these administrators. Who are they? How many they are? What do they do? What do they get paid? And 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 what? How? What impact does this have on healthcare? Uh, but before we do that, I, what I'd like to do is to set a few uh, fundamentals on the table. We 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 did this last time. Uh, in a bit more detail, I was hoping that might, we might do this kind of briefly this morning, and then get into the details. So let me let me begin with a couple of fundamentals, and then ask Gene to do the same discussion about uh, the the finances of healthcare and where the money goes and how much of it is used for healthcare and how much of it isn't. So fundamental number one <clears throat> uh, in this country, healthcare is considered a commodity. A product like a grocery or the gas you put in your tank to run your car. Uh, the other 30, 35 first world countries uh, consider health care an essential public service and a government responsibility. Now, uh, they've figured out uh, a number of ways to provide health care for all of their citizens, uh, whereas in this country, we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 90 million people who are either uninsured or underinsured and vulnerable to medical bankruptcy. Uh, medical bankruptcy is the number one cause of bankruptcy in this country. We have uh, somewhere between 200 to 800,000 uh, filings for medical bankruptcy every year. And I wrote a paper about this uh, for Louisville Medicine a year or so ago, and in doing the research, um, I really couldn't find very much about medical bankruptcy in other countries. I finally found one article that indicated that there was one, I'm going to repeat this, one medical bankruptcy in the country of France, 70 million people, in 2017. Uh, we had uh, Ted Young on here in a, one of our shows last year discussing the differences between the Canadian and the American systems, and Ted uh, basically indicated it just wasn't an issue up there. Now, these other countries have all figured out ways to do uh, provide health care to all of their citizens. Um, uh, the National Health Service in the United Kingdom has been around since the 1940s. And they run everything. They do the hospitals, the physician services, the pharmacy, and it's all managed by, it's uh, funded by um, general taxation. Up in Canada, they have a single payer system that covers the cost of um, the hospital and physician uh, services. Doesn't cover the pharmacy, doesn't cover dental. And the money is provided by the federal government and the states or the, the provinces run the systems. 
and there's a whole bunch of other different ways that Israel and, and Australia and New Zealand, other countries, Scandinavian countries, run their health care systems. Uh, in both Canada and in the United Kingdom, private health insurance is available if you want it. So in this country, we, we really don't have a health care system. We have a... Uh, I've heard it described as a patchwork or, or a crazy quilt of an assortment of different entities that have different functions within healthcare. They're not integrated, they don't work together, they're just all part of our healthcare situation. We have Medicare, uh, a government uh, funded health insurance for uh, citizens over 65 and some groups with special disabilities. And we have Medicaid, which is a government-funded health insurance for uh, people with financial difficulties. And this is a, a partnership or a collaboration between the state and the federal government and unfortunately, because of that, this is different things in different places. Uh, a previous governor uh, in Kentucky expanded Medicare, so in Kentucky, Medicare coverage is pretty good. You mean but, Medicaid. I'm sorry, you're right, uh, Gene, thank you. Medicaid uh, in Tennessee and Texas, uh, Medicaid coverage isn't, isn't very good, and so it's different things in different places. We have a, a number of uh, nonprofit um, health care systems, the VA system, which um, is not a perfect system, but it, it seems to work well for, for, for the veterans that are, that are eligible for it. Uh, they run hospitals, they run, have a pharmacy, uh, they have outpatient clinics. Uh, the three branches of the the uh, the military, Army, Navy, and Marine Corps, all have their their own healthcare systems run by the Department of Defense, and and these are both nonprofit systems. And then, lastly, we have over a thousand um, for-profit health insurance companies, uh, many with 10, 15, or 20 plans that have created this insanely complex system of, of establishing uh, what's covered uh, for your health care. So having gone through that, Gene, maybe I could ask you to, to discuss some of the financial issues that you've done such a good job of researching. I know we talked about this the last time we did this. This is kind of part two. But um, I just thought it would be helpful to kind of go through the fundamentals before we got into the specifics. Well, uh, we're the most expensive healthcare system in the world. We spend approximately twice as much money on healthcare as any other first world country, and yet our results are not that good depending on how you determine what good results are, most people calculate us as being in the middle. We spend approximately uh, $3.6 trillion on healthcare. Approximately 
of that money, it doesn't go to health care. It goes to things like um, uh, for-profits, uh, equity companies, owning uh, nursing homes and hospitals. Um, and essentially our health care system has evolved from the early 60s through the present time from a profession uh, to an industry. It's taken a long time, but now it's picking up speed. And Biden is proposing a, um, a system where we'll have a private option to compete against private insurance. We'll have to wait and see how that works. But we're wasting... Yes, a public option. Um, the um, the interesting thing is that as that evolves, uh, the for-profit insurance companies are uh, advancing uh, their profits. For example, uh, the Advantage plans have since uh, 2017 have increased uh, 41 percent. The uh, Medicaid uh, uh, managed plans that are hired by states have increased 53%. Uh, uh, so uh, the, the he private health insurance companies are increasing their profits. For example, an Advantage plan costs about 18% uh, to administrate, while Medicare alone costs less than 2%. The reason that states are hiring uh, uh, for-profit companies to manage Medicaid is because it's convenient. You can just uh, give a company some money and they can uh, take all the headaches away. But the data shows that uh, if uh, they keep it within the government system, that it's much cheaper to run. Well, all these administrators that we we're, we'll be talking about, I mean, what they do is they're figuring out ways that the money in the system isn't used to pay for health care. That's correct. Uh, Medicare has got a, what, a 2% administrative cost. The country of Taiwan has a universal health care system, and less than 2% of the resources of the money in Taiwanese healthcare is, is spent on administrative costs and over 98% is spent on healthcare. So what we're gonna talk about today is what, what, who are these people, why are they there, what do they do? But basically, as Jane has shown, a third of the, of the, of the revenue in healthcare in this country is not spent on health care. So let me, um, I have three uh, information sources here. <clears throat> uh, the New York Times uh, business section on the 9th of June, 2019, uh, the Bureau of, of Labor Statistics, and the Harvard Business Review. And they all basically show the same things. Numbers may be a little bit different, but they're in the same range. From the mid uh, 1970s to the mid to late 2010s, the number of healthcare administrators, managers, bean counters, whatever you want to 
want to call them, increased an astonishing over 3,000%. Over 3,000%. So there are 10 of them for every practicing physician, every physician. Uh, so healthcare has gradually changed from taking care of patients to doing paperwork and computer work uh, for billing. Now, um, I was in the Navy for 20 years. I was two years on active duty, and I spent 18 years in the reserves and worked in uh, naval medical facilities in this country and in and, and uh, overseas. And um, you know, the Navy's got uh, flagship hospitals in Bethesda, Maryland, in Norfolk, Virginia, in San Diego, in Naples, Italy. Um, as a as a physician in the Navy, you are a medical corps officer. If you are a health administrator in the Navy, you are a member of the Medical Service Corps. So whereas in uh, civilian health care in this country, there are 10 administrators to every physician in the military system, and I'm pretty sure it's the same in the Army and the Air Force, there are more Medical Corps officers than there are Medical Service Corps officers. Well, another interesting uh, thing that's going on, which I, I think is fascinating, uh, many of you may remember that two and a half years ago that Amazon, uh, J.P. Morgan, and Berkshire Hathaway came together, and they were going to form a health uh, insurance company to uh, try to reduce the tremendous cost of healthcare, and uh, you know that's a lot. Those companies are three of the, of the largest in the country, and they've got a lot of power. And they hired a, actually a surgeon. He's, he's from Boston, works at the Bingham, and uh, he's done a lot of writing as an expert in uh, healthcare. His name is Doctor Atu Gawande. He is an actual surgeon and. Uh, uh, knows a lot about health care. Well, just a few weeks ago, the company, um, after two and a half years, is disbanding. And uh, one of the reasons is that they couldn't control things. It was, uh, you would think that the, those companies, with the amount of money they have, could control things, but uh, it's really not in the hands of the companies it's in the hands of the insurance companies, in the for-profits, and uh, if you uh, if you can't, can't control the profit, the profit, then uh, uh, you can't control health care. He made some really interesting comments uh, that I read this week. One was he said that we cannot control health care without the government intervention. I thought that was very interesting in saying that the government has to get involved, and hopefully we're going to see that happen. It's not that uh, we're going to have a, a socialized system. We may have preserved a system with private insurance where people can make a choice, but 
the government's going to have to uh, make some regulations. For example, for-profit insurance company uh, could uh, involved in in the companies uh, like utilities that are, are controlled with uh, heavy uh, regulations. Be be like a utility company. Uh, the other interesting thing he talked about was a lack of continuity of care and investment into a patient's uh, uh, medical uh, adventures and, and stating that there were, should be someone who is a primary care physician who knows the patient and who follows them for a long period of time. We used to have that. But now we've we we we've lost most of that. We have patients going to hospitals. Their primary care physician is not involved, and then they see multiple physicians they don't know, and there's no, no emotional, uh, there's no personal care, and this also dramatically uh, increases the cost of medicine, which. Uh, we uh, have, uh, it's totally out of control in my opinion. Gene, every other first world country has recognized the, the necessity of doing this. Um, Israel has a universal health care system. Uh, it took Japan 10 years to, to transition from a system like ours that was run by insurance companies to a universal health care system that, that um, is, 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 you know, similar to some other ones but different. The, you know, they're funded a little bit by the central government, a little bit by the local governments, a little bit by employers, a little bit by employees. I mean, all these different countries have figured out different ways how to do these things. Saudi Arabia, not exactly a, an example of raging socialism or human rights has figured out that, they, that you know, provides good health care for all of their citizens. They don't have 90 million people who are uninsured or underinsured or vulnerable to medical bankruptcy like, like, like we do. So, I mean, I think this is, this is the, the, the clear uh, way to the future. Now, the problem in this country, at least in the short run, is that the 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 political will is going to be, uh, I think, lacking as long as we are as closely and intensely divided as we are. I mean, the CARES plan that was just passed, or I guess is going to be passed today, is based on one vote. I mean, there's 50 in the Senate and 50, uh, 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans, and, and there, there were no Republicans supporting this. So uh, it, it's going to be a while. I mean, I, I would hope that, the, um, that some public option gets established, and I, I would also hope that people will recognize the importance of having a system that is not driven by profit by simply driven by the need to give people health care coverage and if if they can get that get that going i think that's going to be that would be at least in my opinion that would be the first step toward getting to a point where we 
would hope to have something, uh, some kind of single-payer system in this country like they do in all the other first-world countries. Well, you can have a single-payer system uh, that works, and it can still be a semi-capitalistic system like in Germany and Switzerland where the government tightly regulates the system so you can't take advantage of it. But the patient or, or, or the person who's buying the insurance can decide what they want, but everyone has to be covered and everyone is taken care of, And but you can still have free choice. There are a lot of people uh, who are so concerned about socialism. Well, it uh, depends on how you define socialism, but the German system, in, in my opinion, is not really socialism. And, of course, most of the countries in Europe and uh, most of the countries, the first world countries that Mike's talking about, are capitalist countries. They've just figured out a way where we can come together with government supervision to, um, uh, to provide health care at a reasonable cost and for everyone. Yes, and that, you know. Gene, I was just going to say that the system that Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare advocates for is a publicly financed but privately delivered healthcare system. Right. And when you talk about government intervention, um, I, th I think we talked about this earlier. Um, this winter when there was that story on uh, 60 Minutes about Sutter Healthcare Systems up in Northern California where they were just gobbling up hospitals and other practices that those hospital monopolies that dominate a market, they raised their cost where prices were 70% higher in Northern California than they were in Southern California. Yeah, that's I, just that's totally crazy. I think uh, we may see more of that because of the endemic. Oh yeah, and, and there are a lot of hospitals who are not doing well, particularly rural hospitals. If you have a large uh, company comes in and buys those hospitals, then they usually take the profits out of the small hospitals, and they usually diminish. Uh, what those hospitals are doing. I think that's a very serious problem, and I think we're going to see um, more and more of that. But if, if, if we have strict government regulations, then we can stop that. I mean, it's just like uh, uh, we talked about capitalism. Capitalism is a great system, but Wall Street has to be regulated. The, the market, when the market fell... In uh, 1929, the main reason it fell because there was nobody controlling it. It got out totally out of control, and it was being run by uh, big for-profit banks in New York. So if the, if the government had to step in and control things, you couldn't buy, you know, a million dollars worth of stock on 10% margin. That's what was going on. This deregulation has been going on since uh, Reagan stood up and said the government is the problem, not the solution. Which is just, you know, this is this is what this is an ideological uh, belief. Quick comment before we get back to that. 
every one of those for other first world countries, Gina, I, I, I would absolutely agree with you. Scandinavian countries that have very strong social programs, they, they, are, they have market economies. Australia, New Zealand, Canada, South Korea, Japan, on and on. Italy, they all have market economies. These are not communist countries. These are not Sweden is a socialist country, but most of the other countries are not. And most of the most of the uh, healthcare systems are situations where the government provides um, the funds, the health coverage, and that the the system of health care is not run by the government. That's that's true in, I think, Taiwan. I'm not sure about Japan. Uh, and it's true in, in, in the United Kingdom. But Australia, New Zealand, Canada, um, Norway, all those other countries, they, they have this two-part process. And in uh, most of those places, um, uh, private insurance is available if you want it. Now, the next comment is we were just talking about. There is this, there's this magical place that exists. It's called the, the competitive marketplace, the competitive healthcare marketplace. And, and this is a magical place. No, there is, where everything is, gets taken care of by by the marketplace and the marketplace will correct all these things and everything everything is going to be wonderful at the end of the day well everything is wonderful at the end of the day for the corporations and wall street and places like that now the best example of how this magical marketplace works is if you have have anybody paid any attention to what was going on in texas the energy, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, no, really, yeah, uh, know. a couple. It yeah. was insane. The, these people down there have these beliefs, you know, don't tread on me, don't regulate me, and so they, 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 they no, there's no control over the and uh, anything, and and this this totally deregulated environment just collapsed. Right. And and I, I agree with you. It, it, it absolutely there needs to be uh, some sensible regulatory process that controls our economy as well as as health care. And uh, uh, it's going to take a while. Well, we need to also realize that I'm not proposing this, but I want you to understand that the British healthcare system is a socialized system. But the Brits are very happy with it. They just had a celebration last year, and they were, they're extremely happy. And you need to remember how they got where they are. They voted that in. As a matter of fact, Winston Churchill got defeated over that one issue right at the ending of World War II because he was opposed to socialized medicine. The Brits wanted it, and so they voted him out. I think he got reelected again, but and they're very proud of their system, and they're very happy with it. I'm not saying we should have a system like that, but I think we can have a uh, a system that provides care for everyone at a reasonable price, and 
uh, it just has to be regulated. Just the, the data I just quoted you, where a third of the uh, money we spend is doesn't really go to health care. And so we can eliminate that and save a lot of money. For example, advertising. There's no other country in the world that advertises hospitals, uh, drugs. New Zealand, for some reason, allows them to advertise drugs. We are responsible for half of the entire drug bill of the entire world. Why should we be paying for that much money for drugs where no one else is? I mean, uh, we, we're charitable, but uh, there's got to be a limit to that. Uh, we can eliminate the administrative cost. Just the administrative cost of medicine alone represents about 34% of the excess cost in our health care system. Why should nursing homes be run by equity companies? I mean, I think uh, we're all interested in making money, but I think there's a difference between making money selling cars and uh, groceries as compared uh, to uh, uh, taking care of sick folks. I, I really think that uh, making money on sick folks other than the salaries, which are reasonable, is uh, immoral. Now, speaking of money, let me give you some uh, prices on how much some the CEOs of these big health care companies. All right, Gene. You, you, you tell me yours, and I'm going to show you mine. This is a, this okay, is, this is a G-rated uh, program. <laughs> this is the uh, uh, S&P 500 mm -hmm. companies and the health care companies, and the uh, CEO of CVS makes 36.5 uh, million. That's about 390 times more than the people who work for CVS. And uh, the poor guy at the uh, uh, at the bottom of the list is uh, Sig the CEO of Cigna. He makes $19.3 million, and that represents uh, uh, excess pay of uh, $6.5 million. And his uh, ratio to the average worker at that company is uh, uh, 360. Uh, so uh, those poor guys, I don't, I, I don't know what they do to make that much money. Uh, they must be extremely smart and manipulative. I can't imagine anyone deserves to make that much money uh, as a CEO. Well, let's talk. Let's get into the specifics of this with the for-profit health insurance companies. But let me, let me. I've got some numbers here as well. These are. This is CEO compensation from 2019. This is United Health Services, a fellow named Alan Miller, getting uh, $23 million. Um, uh, Columbia HCA, a uh, fellow named H. M Milton Johnson, another $20 million. Uh, Cigna, David Sindaris, $18 million. I mean, this stuff goes on and on and on, but I want to, I've got the, 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 the absolute king of CEO compensation for, um, from for-profit insurance companies. And this is going back a little bit. This was a, this is a, I wrote a, I wrote a paper for the Louisville Medicine about 20 years ago. There's a guy named William McGuire, who was the CEO of United, <laughs> United Health. And in 2000, 
three, he made $94 million and change in one year. Now, McGuire was a doctor, wasn't he? He was a pulmonologist, yeah. <laughs> you got to do a lot of spirometry to <laughs> see a lot of no, patients. Well, it, it, it sounds like capitalism works, <laughs> but it doesn't work well, for well, the this, small guy, this you is, know, the you little know, guy. Exactly. That was my whole point about this magical place, the medical marketplace, where magically all these guys, the fat cats at the top are doing fine, and the crabs are scrambling around down in the bottom of the barrel looking for the scraps but 94 but when this guy retired he had he had billions of dollars and and after the after the crash of 2028 um and the what's the name the oxley actor they scrap they they crawl clawed back a bunch of resources from him but he still had hundreds of millions of dollars it was it's just it, it's it was absolutely it's absolutely insane all right, I'm going to ask a rhetorical question. Okay, what is the purpose, the goal, or the mission of these uh, investor-owned for-profit health insurance companies? To make money. Exactly. It's to make and keep as much money as possible. But it should be to take care of patients. I know, but that's that taking health care is the vehicle that allows them to do this. It is not their goal. Their goal is profit and they make no secret about it they the the actual cost of paying for health care is called a medical think about this medical loss ratio that's that's the cost of paying for health care it's interesting that uh, last year 2020 uh, that the insurance companies were bringing in more money. Their medical loss ratio, I guess you say it's increased. And so uh, they're not supposed to make more than uh, 20%. So now they have this big problem. Are they going to give it back? What are they going to do with it? Some companies are now providing more services, uh, transportation, uh, free meals at home, uh, Dental care, uh, ophthalmology care, et cetera, et cetera, try to get away from paying the money back. If you remember, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield went to uh, became a non, uh, I mean, a for-profit insurance company in the 90s. And before that, they were a non-for-profit. If they made an excess amount of money, they would often refund uh, money to the the people that they were insuring. They would decrease their premiums, and this is the way it should be. But now, no, no, they see how much money they make. And the and the other interesting thing is that the more charges they have, the more money they make. Because if if twenty percent of two billion dollars. They make more money than 20% of $1 billion. And so it goes on and on and on. There's a, there's a motivation, actually, to increase the cost. So let's just talk about this process. So you, you pay a premium to a for-profit health insurance company. Where, where does the money go? Well, as you alluded to earlier, Gene, it goes to, a, to a, 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 well administrative costs. And there's no question that there are legitimate administrative costs. Medicare has a 2%, Taiwan has less than 2%. Um, 
advertising, huge waste of money. You know, I was watching the news last night before I went to bed, and I went from um, I went from Fox News to CNN to MSNBC, and I would change the channels because of the advertisements, <laughs> and most of the advertisements were about drugs. And, right. and some of these drugs, I haven't, I wouldn't know what they were all about. I have to go look them up. I mean, it was just this endless barrage of information about something that might, a monoclonal antibody that'll maybe live you, extend your life and go talk to your doctor about it and something for arthritis or something else to get uh, psoriasis off your skin. It was on and on and on. So that that's advertising. Well, some of these drugs are good, but uh, uh, no one else in the world advertises it. It's the, the decision is made between the doctor and the patient. And uh, some of these drugs are miracle drugs, like some, the drugs for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis and uh, the, the, some of the new cancer drugs. And at home, we've got several patients who had lung cancer, and, and now they don't have any evidence of uh, metastatic disease. It's phenomenal. But there, there's absolutely no reason that um, you should... Uh, advertise for this yes absolutely i mean and i agree you know the targeted therapy where you have a specific monoclonal antibody for a specific cancer and then you combine the monoclonal antibody with the chemotherapy agent then the monoclonal antibody binds with the antigen on the cell and the chemotherapy agent goes, i mean it's not, it is it's absolutely fascinating they don't need to be advertising this to people who, who, who are sitting, you know, with high school education sitting there trying. It's, it's, just, it's just a huge, huge waste of money. Well, and, and, and let's not forget uh, pharmaceuticals like Oxycontin being pushed on. Oh, yes. Well, that's a whole but, yeah, n- but, but, n- but, another issue. But yeah. that, that's yeah. another type oh, of uh, well, well, that, infiltration well, corrupting well, the yes, system. Yes, yes. Uh, next, next, uh, the other thing that the money goes to is political contributions. That's a big deal. This system would not exist without the political contributions. Right. And the senior senator from Kentucky is it has turned uh, a political fundraising into an art form. Let me tell you a story about the, the, the politics. There was a. There was a, a general surgeon, actually recently died, here in Louisville, who, a good general surgeon, about 20, 25 years ago, he retired, and he ran for state legislature. And I think you know who, 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 yes. who it is. I think he, was a, he ran for the House of Representatives. That's correct. Uh, he gave a talk, and this was, again, probably 20 years ago, the Louisville Surgical Society, and there were two, Two points that I, I remember clearly from that. One, the first point was that uh, he talked about making laws, and he described it as making sausage. And he gave an example of where he had sponsored a bill. And the bill went through the, the, the committee system, and by the time the bill came back to be voted on, he ended up voting against his own bill because it had changed so much. <laughs> And the other thing he said, which was was very clear, 
and very direct, and he was very clear about this, and he said the politicians don't understand health care. They're, they're, they're lawyers, they're businessmen, they're, they may be pastors. They, they really don't understand it, and they're, they're literally led around by lobbyists. Well, I think most doctors don't understand uh, well, medical <laughs> care. I mean, they understand how to practice medicine and take care of patients. Well, I think you're right. Okay, aside from next, next down the list are, is executive compensation. Now, you, we, we both have lists of people making. Uh, today, it looks like, um, you know, back in 2000, uh, 2003 and 2004, those were the glory days of executive compensation for the for-profit insurance companies. And a lot of that changed after the, the uh, economic issues that happened in 2008. So most of the salaries have come down. From 45 million or 90 million down to 20 or 30 million, uh, and, and but that's just the top guy. That's the CEO. Right. The CEO is maybe going to get a few million less, and the CFO, and you go all the way down this food chain of people feeding off the system, making huge, huge amounts of money. Then next item down the agenda are investments. So they take money that they've got laying around, they invest it, and they make more money. And this money doesn't go to reduce premiums or change anything. This money just goes into somebody's pockets. And then, as I mentioned earlier, the, the, the claims are, 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 that are paid that's called a medical loss ratio. So when you get finished siphoning all of this money off the top and then pay the claims, the money that's left over either goes to investors or it goes to executive bonuses. Yeah, I mean, this is an insane, an insane system where healthcare is is used where it literally it's literally exploited. For, for for this for this purpose. Well, I think that that money should uh, go to patient care, and or to reduce premiums. It shouldn't go uh, to administrators and. Uh, well, what these administrators have done is they have put together this insanely complex system that the patients have to endure in order to get coverage. And the provider has to endure in order to get paid. And this, and this involves pre-authorization. Um, it involves co-payments. It involves deductibles. It involves coverage denials. It involves co-insurance, uncovered services, uh, networks, surprise billing. Now, one of the things I learned recently that surprise billing is now a revenue enhancer for many of these investor-owned health facilities, like a for-profit ER. Rather than stay in a system or in a, in a network, they uh, stay out of the network in order to send these surprise bills out 
because they make more money from it. And another group that does the same thing are investor-owned physician staffing firms, which also uses surprise billing, uh, you know, to, to enhance their revenue. So, I mean, this, this system is, is these administrators have put the system together to find as many different ways to extract money out of the system for other purposes than to pay for health care. Well, let me just tell you a recent uh, episode in pharmacy I had. I'm on a drug called Berlinda, which is an antiplatelet um, drug because I have a stent in my heart. And so I've been taking this drug since uh, 2017. I went to the pharmacy two or three weeks ago, and they said it's going to be $1,000. I said, well, I've never paid that much for for this drug. And they fooling around and got on good RX, and they said they can get it down to 350. Well, I started looking on the internet, and they had a coupon where you could get the drug for um, five dollars. And I said, "Well, can you get to me this drug for five dollars?" And they said, "No, that's only if you have private insurance. If you have Medicare." You can't do that. So I talked to another pharmacy at our hospital. He said, oh, it's against the law for Medicare to do that. They can't take rebates. So the people on Medicare have to end up paying more. They can't take the rebates. It's actually against the law on Part D of Medicare. And, Mike, you've had a similar story, haven't you? Yes, I had a similar situation with uh, Eliquis right. where where the, the price – went up after a couple of refills, and I ended up having to negotiate with a pharmacy benefit manager group. So, I mean, we talked about them the last time we were in here. They have their fingers in the food chain or the chain from the manufacturer to the wholesaler to the insurance companies to the pharmacies and to the patient or client. And again, this is another just another example of all of these administrative personnel that have insinuated themselves in between the 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 provider, the physician, and the recipient or the patient. Um, again, let's a little bit about back to this for-profit health insurance company. You, you know, you've got we've got what over a thousand companies with 20 or 30 different plans and the quality of your coverage is going to depend upon your premium so that pay a lot of money on premiums you get good coverage if you belong to a large group uh, that can negotiate general motors or something like that they can negotiate with insurance companies and get get a good get a good um, get a good you know good coverage at a low cost well low cost plan you've got poor coverage and uh <laughs> you know uh, something bad happens you, you you know you're you're out you you don't you you you're on your own you you file for bankruptcy now we talked about this a little bit the last time we were on here and, and i'm i think i had the numbers wrong but we had a, a retired gynecologist on um a couple of shows ago and um, uh, her husband is a dentist, 
a solo practitioner in a small office with a small number of other uh, of, uh, people in the office who apparently all had health insurance from other sources. So uh, she and her husband, uh, their health insurance policy for the two of them, and these are not people with with uh, a lot of pre-existing conditions, uh, cost $1,000 a month. I, I had my health insurance plan at U of L before I retired was 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 two or three hundred. It was a couple hundred dollars. It was much 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 less than that. And I and there, a thousand dollars a month. That's twelve thousand dollars a year. And they have eight thousand dollar deductible. They've got to burn through eight thousand dollars of out of pocket costs before the health even kicks in. And then you get into all of these other things like the deductibles and the co-payments and all of the other stuff. So this is it's a remarkable system. I know we're getting short on time, so we're probably going to have to finish up here. I would suggest that we continue this with part three when we talk about investor-owned because we haven't even gotten to that yet. So, Well, well if you're a small company, say you got uh, 50 people working for you, Healthcare is your biggest cost problem, and uh, you end up uh, paying the same, but you got to increase the deductible up to ten thousand dollars. Well, most people who work for companies like that don't have an extra ten thousand dollars floating around, and for self-employed people, particularly in rural America and farmers, they can't afford it. I, I've had many, many patients whose wife worked in a factory uh, so that they could keep farming and so they could afford their, their insurance. All right, single-payer profits for the 85 top publicly traded for-profit health insurance companies. I don't know which ones these are. This is New York Times, Sunday Review, 17 November 2019, uh, $47 billion with a B. That's a single quarter profits for 85 for-profit health insurance companies. There are over 900 others out there with their hands in the cookie jar. So if you dub, you multiply this times four, you're, 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 you've, you've almost got $200 billion of, of, of money that is just taken out of the system is profit, which doesn't happen in Canada and doesn't happen in Taiwan. It doesn't happen in all kinds of other places. And, uh, you know, I think as we, as we finish up here, it is, it is my hope that uh, uh, somebody out there is listening to this. I mean, you and I aren't getting, the three of us aren't getting paid to come in here and do this. We, we're, we do this with, with the hope that maybe somebody out there will be listening, they will think about these things, they will not take our word for this, we're not making this stuff up, that they will go to whatever resource they find uh, useful, Google or, or, or whatever, or uh, Kaiser Health uh, Review or you know, whatever is out there, there's all kinds of podcasts and, 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 and you know, verify what we're saying because we're, we're not making this stuff up. 
I think we should make you the health care czar, but you don't get any salary. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, on that note, um, let me just say that, uh, again, uh, thanks for coming in from Campbellsville, Dr. Shively, and um, a jog over here from Cherokee Park from Dr. <laughs> Flynn. Uh, for more information, uh, on Kentuckians for single-payer health care, you can go to kyhealthcare.org. Uh, we're on Facebook. And uh, if you've had issues with your Medicare Advantage program, please send KTillo a note. K's email address is nursenpo at aol.com nurse npo at aol.com k would really like to talk with you uh, single payer radio can be heard three times a week mondays at 2 p.m tuesdays at 7 a.m and wednesdays at 11 a.m and just a reminder uh, for our listeners that Forward Radio, WFMP, LP, will be having its pledge drive March the 27th through April the 9th. They've got special premiums for donors. And you can always donate to Forward Radio at forwardradio.org. And please show your support. Again, forwardradio.org. Thank you very much.